the concept of always searching for frameworks and wisdom of others to enable you to go faster and learn from, from where they struggled, it's just so powerful. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled, and I'm pleased to have Fred Koopmans with us as our guest. He's a CPO Chief Product Officer at Big Panda. Fred, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Arman. Really appreciate taking the time to speak with me. Fred, tell us a little bit about yourself, your story. Yeah, uh, happy to. So kind of a engineer by trade. I've been in and around the product area here in Silicon Valley for a little over 20 years. I kind of started in networking equipment and then moved to traffic management and then big data platforms. And currently I'm working in uh, AI operations. So kind of applied artificial intelligence, which has been a lot of fun beyond work. You know, I, I live in the Bay Area with my wife and four daughters. At Big Panda, what kind of problems you are solving? What does the company do? It's a very interesting problem. We provide a service that helps businesses keep their digital services running, essentially help keeping the, the digital world up and running 24 by 7. Specifically, we serve the, the IT operations teams. These are the folks that are responsible for keeping these digital services running all the time. So I'll give you a few examples. If you take like an, an airline company, they have hundreds of applications that all are mission critical for their business. So whether that's the, the website or the check-in app, bag tracking, you know, even just like the detecting the, the food delivery to each airplane, all of those services have to be running in order for the planes to be flying. And there's a team, like an IT operations team, whose, whose job it is is to monitor all of those and when things go wrong, not, not if, because when, you know, things are breaking all the time, they need to jump onto it and, and route it to the right place to get it fixed as soon as possible. So whether you're an airline or a bank or an insurance company, you know, there's just like every business these days has some form of critical digital services that the team is increasingly kind of put on the hot seat to, to keep running. So we serve that, that, uh, that customer base. Okay. You know, we had a discussion before. There were a number of topics that came up. So definitely, I, I'm pretty sure there is no shortage of topics to discuss. But the one that I would like to bring it up and start with, maybe out of, you know, all of those 
would be something that you you have experience working with a company or with companies that you know they had software not running at, in SaaS, but just not on-premise kind of software, right? So you develop the application as it used to be 20 years ago, and then the application, the software is on-premise. And now you are working with a company that is designed from the ground to be really SaaS. And then, you know, that is probably changing a lot of things. But what are the major items from your perspective that SaaS has changed the software industry, the role of IT you know, what are those components? How do you see it the way, you know, SaaS changed? Not just because it's subscription revenue or it's from outside. We are using SaaS. We just go there and we don't deploy anything as a user. It's easier for us to sign up and start using it. But I'm talking about internally. If you look at it from inside, what are the things that have changed? There's a lot of angles to the question. So excited to explore this here with you. I'll start with... It's sort of well known at this point that there was the kind of the CIO buying era, and then that led to maybe the the VP of IT, and then now it's it's the end users. So it's it's end users that are kind of making the decisions and, and driving a lot of the purchasing within large enterprises these days. From kind of an internal perspective, the way I've seen that manifested specifically, let's say just within the IT operations area that Big Panda serves, is that as that happened, the, the the centralization kind of broke down, and the, and the and the power went out into the business units, and there were a host of vendors there to serve them, and all of that kind of changed the world dramatically. So you have with the cloud, of course, the rise of on-demand elastic computing at at you know very granular kind of infrastructure. So all of a sudden you have an explosion of the number of servers and the variability of those servers that are out there running that, that company's you know, applications. Additionally, there was another trend that happened. It, maybe it's not exactly because of SaaS, but coincident with it, which is a, a transition from kind of monolithic applications, sort of like very big, you know, kind of the traditional on-prem monolithic at least, to microservices. So what that does is it increases the number of services that need to be monitored and kept online, you know, by an order of magnitude, possibly even more. And then next you have CICD. It's a fundamental change to the way that we develop software. So continuously integrating all of your small granular check-ins and then deploying them uh, into the system. The idea there is like, let's catch problems much quicker rather than, you know, dumping, you know, months worth of changes all at once. Well, as you can imagine, that's that's like an order of magnitude or, or two of more opportunity for things to break okay, through, through this new process. You're constantly making changes, like the, the time frames of which you can, you can break something happens much more frequently. And then you have DevOps. Okay, there's another big trend here. So this is sort of a, a, a regrouping of taking sort of some component of an operations teams and then combining that with the development team and they're they're typically like the let's say the second line or third line responders not not typically the first line kind of available staffing the system 24 by 7 but that explosion created a whole new suite of tools and what that kind of manifests itself as 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 10 times more data silos so they each have their own monitoring tool just for their application but all siloed away from the central tool and then you have the pandemic 
okay? And the pandemic did this massive acceleration of digitization. So, so the first year alone, I've heard people say, brought forward, you know, at least like six years worth of digital transformation. And the, the, the impact to the IT team is while they were losing control, step by step by step, you know, they weren't purchasing these things, but they were still responsible for managing them. They still had to be the IT operations teams to kind of keep these things up and running 24 by seven. Their job got like three, four, five orders of magnitude more difficult. And at the same time, because of the shift in, in a lot of companies' revenue to be sort of digital-based revenue, the importance of their function was higher and higher and higher, right? They, they, were, they were keeping the, the company running. That's interesting to me in a way because that was made possible by SaaS. Like you, you couldn't have gone through that kind of transformation if you were talking about traditional software, you know, be that on-prem software, even you know, traditional software running the cloud because you would have needed the IT team to evaluate and procure and deploy and manage. But with vendors taking over all of those sort of phases for you, making it much easier, that's what enabled this explosion. Now, that's like, let's say the good news. And what I found interesting is that you think about these, these trends, cloud and microservices, CICD, it's just kind of universally accepted as these are positive, good trends for the world. I think that's true, and it's, it's moved the world forward, uh, the technology world forward dramatically. But I'll say it kind of left the IT ops team behind, like they got left in the dust a little bit because their tools, their event management tools and other systems were like 10, 20 year old on-prem kind of legacy systems. They just couldn't keep up with this. So, so frankly, that's why, why Big Panda exists was to uh, come in and provide like kind of a step change improvement for those teams to help those businesses continue on their their innovation journey and their their efficiency and just continuing to scale so that's like i think that's like like one angle what about the importance of product itself is it has it changed i mean SaaS has changed that equation that you go and you look at the product versus you know everything else that you know a software company does it's changed entirely yeah. So, so I think there's, you know, I'll just think about my own career. I, I spent the first 10, 15 years building software that was sold on-prem in a perpetual business model or perpetual license. So what I needed to do is, you know, get the current release out and then think of a bunch of really interesting new things to go put into the next release so that I could go and sell that to the customer. So like, okay, version five is out. Let me go save a bunch of really valuable features to version six. And then I have like a, a conversation and negotiation with the customer to try to convince them that there's additional value. It's worth you know, several more millions of dollars to pay me for version six. So it's like the perpetual model. Then you get the subscription model where you land somewhere and then you're like, okay, there's a renewal coming. Let's make sure the customer's happy. Hopefully they're gonna expand as, a little bit as well but you're driving features again for the sake of helping to drive that renewal. In a consumption model, it's, it's just, it's very different. So it's the business model is different. I'll, maybe I'll come to that here in a minute. But one of the biggest changes I see is the, the, the impact that product has and frankly, the responsibility that product has has changed. So traditionally in an on-prem kind of software model, 
you know, look, you have to design the product, you have to describe how to position it, uh, you have to work with engineering to ship it, but then your job stops for a little bit, right? Like, like you, there, there's a big gap from the moment the software is released to the time that the customer achieves their value realization. It's not the product team that's making that happen. It, it's pre-sales and post-sales teams that are making that happen. And that's sometimes like 12, 18, 24 months later from the moment of release to the moment of value realization. And in SaaS, well, that, that goes away, that, that gap. You know, it should go away. It, sh it shrinks considerably. It's not that you don't have, you know, pre-sales and post-sales, but that, that gap goes where you release software, it's impacting your customers immediately. There's like no place to hide, you know, good for the good or, or for the bad, they're going to see the value or the lack thereof immediately. And that feedback's going to come right back to the product organization. And the feature didn't work or it didn't deliver the value. So it's like one side of it. The other side is it's literally your job to make that gap go away. This isn't just a thing that happens. You have to treat the pre-sales and post-sales, you know, the, your, your sales teams is almost like users of your product. You have to design it to make it easier to be sold. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to design a thing here that's going to enable a POV. And I'm going to design a thing here that's going to enable a proof of value, uh, is, is, is the term, a POV, proof of value, or design a thing here that's going to help enable some magic sort of aha moment in the customer that the salesperson can easily help with and then takes them to the next thing. And then the renewals are all just built into the product and you want to show a forecast of how the usage is growing. So you have to think much more holistically about it. It's not just shipping software. You have to engineer and kind of product manage like the whole sales cycle from, from pre-sales to post-sales onboarding to even the renewal. That's, that's just part of the product you have to design. That's different, you know. That's um, you know, you gotta, you gotta bring it for that. You gotta bring your A game, uh, for this. It, it's, it, you know, I, I can't think of a better test for one's product capabilities than working in enterprise SaaS right now. It, it's like it's it's sort of where it's at from from the best of the best. I think go there because of that problem I have. There's just so much responsibility. So I find that that super interesting. Let's say, for example, I'm a company, you know, I have a product very established. I have a lot of users I have been, you know, pretty successful, but it is on premise. And now I wanted to move that product and make it a SaaS product because of all of those benefits that you mentioned, both internally, externally, you know, from any aspect, right? Is it just a product change? Do you see it as more a business change on both sides? Does it, you know, go back to the root and the DNA? And what are the, 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 the factors that can be done better for the companies when they make such a move to pay attention in order to lower their risk, in order to maximize their probably chance of success, in order to make that move from making the product now a SaaS product that used to be, you know, the same product, people still need it. The need hasn't gone away. It's just the company wants now to offer it as a SaaS. I mean, honestly, that that is like the, the, the billion dollar or the trillion dollar question of our age is how do you transition for that? And frankly, not a lot of companies have done it. 
So, so I don't know that I've got like the answers here. I'll tell you kind of my experiences. If we think of who's like really successfully transitioned from on-prem to a cloud cloud business model, Microsoft, Adobe, VMware to a certain extent. There's a few companies, but I, I can't think of a lot. And I think the reason is it's incredibly hard. Like you have to have like basically the most disciplined, the best run company to possibly make this happen. And if you still have that at the moment you decide to do it, and then you make some dramatic, bold conviction that says we are now a cloud company and all of your energy and focus and resources go into that, like that, that's the kind of thing it takes if you're a mature business. If you're still like super early and, and figuring things out, maybe it's there's less established culture and practice and norms and customers and innovators dilemma kind of situations that are that are holding you back. So I'll preface everything I say with that. Right? This is hard. Second is, so imagine when you're first building something, you start with something small and then you find your customers and then they ask for a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And 10 years later, you've got a fairly big, complicated product with a lot of expectations. And then someone comes to you, you know, it's your, your sales team or your CEO and says, now I want the cloud version of that. So one approach is to say, okay, well, let me think of this as a feature. You know, let me get out my pen and paper. You know, I'm going to write a PRD. Well, what would it mean to go take this thing and run it on AWS? You could think of it like a feature. And this is the wrong way to do it. You need to start over. You need to start, says, okay, well, well you know, first off, if, if you just want to get to the cloud as quickly as possible, you should go with some kind of a lift and shift thing. Make your software run in the cloud somehow with a lift and shift kind of model. And, and maybe like you can play defense, you can buy yourself a couple of years there and some customers will stay with you throughout it. That won't last for long, but you can you know, have a version that if, it, if they can kind of stick with what they've invested in your, in your, in your stack, whatever it happens to be, but now it runs in, in the cloud of their choosing instead of in their own data center, like you, you'll get some mileage out of that. But when you really want to build a SaaS product, honestly, I would start over. I would start with, well, what is the value proposition? How am I going to land new customers? And don't build for your most sophisticated customer. They will mislead you. <laughs> they will tell you, I need all of these features. But by the way, now that you're running the cloud, I need all these extra high-end security features and DR and other sorts of things. And, and if you compare yourself to what a, a startup would be doing that's trying to solve the same problem, they would never build those features in year one. Those would be features they would build in year seven or eight when they have so much momentum in the marketplace and they have so much experience and success that they can kind of start to go up the market. But everyone that starts in, in SaaS, they don't start with your high-end Fortune 100 federal kind of customers. They start with small, mid-sized kind of companies. They get a lot of traction. They, they optimize for how can I deliver some amount of value as quickly as possible and as repeatedly as possible? And that's just not how the on-prem model works. You know, you, that wasn't, you know, even if, if you did that maybe 10 years ago, that's probably not where you were now when you started this transition. So I guess the, the lesson I would try to say is start over. Don't try to port everything you've got and just like treat it like a feature to like, Make it SaaS, check. <laughs> you want to start to, to think from the beginning, go back to first principles. What would a startup be doing right now? Because that's your competition. Somebody says, I think I can do this better. 
as a startup than than that sort of more more established but kind of legacy minded company might be able to do. Yeah, no great points made here. Number one, it's not a feature; it's architectural change. So you have to start over. Don't think of it as I will add something in three months. But also, you know, the point that you mentioned, I just wanted to better understand from your perspective when you say start over, start over the product or start over the business. Because some of the points that you just mentioned, it goes beyond the product, like starting with customers that are smaller. That's wrong to go with a new product and start with the most complex and most sophisticated kind of situations and customers, because then you end up, you know, as you said, and rightfully pointed out that, you know, you start with the requirements that are tough to do and is not required, honestly. I mean, at the start, you don't need to have the most sophisticated security model. If you're a startup, if you're a new product, if you're a new business, you have that luxury to start with a smaller, simpler use cases and then grow up in some years in the right way. But if you are existing company with existing customers, with a lot of those, you may just mislead yourself and go to your best customers and then put the requirement and then go to SaaS. And then that is a product right off the bat to a very big challenge, maybe mission impossible, something like that. So how do you see it? Is it really a three starting and a starting new product? Or it sometimes it's about really starting a new business maximizes your chance. Just separate that brand, give yourself that kind of option that this brand expectation from this is not that much. Go with the new brand, set the expectation at the right level, bring you know customers and grow with them. I think you're spot on. Whether you literally start a new brand or or, or not. I don't know that I have a strong opinion there. I, I could see the pros and the cons. But what I will say is internally, at least, you should think of it as starting a new business, a new company, perhaps, if you will, because the mindset and the culture and the systems is, is all different. You know, What would this startup be thinking about? What would they be doing? It reminds me a little bit of the, the series of books, the business management books from, from Jeffrey Moore. Um, kind of from Crossing the Chasm, which was his sort of first in the series, to Zone to Win, uh, which is, uh, I think, the seventh one in the series. And what I like about them is, is you know, Crossing the Chasm provides like this business framework for the startup. Okay, when you're trying to attack somebody else's business or disrupt something, well, how do you think about it? And, and you should really know that because a lot of startups are thinking that way. Zone to Win, on the other hand, says, what if you're the established business and you're trying to catch a new wave or, or create a new line of business that could really be meaningful? The threshold he uses is 10%. How can you create something that would be 10% of total revenue? And how do you focus on that? How do you organize your, your company and your business? And depending on whether you're playing offense, you know, and you're just trying to create something brand new or you're playing defense, you're being attacked and your on-prem business is, is under attack from, from startups. And now you want to go on defense. How could you neutralize the competition, et cetera? And he's, his guidelines are like, treat it like its own new company and focus all of your energy and attention on that new thing. And you have to kind of squeeze the resources off of that existing business 
And that's both from an engineering perspective and a product perspective and a sales perspective. And you got to incentivize the marketing team and the sales team to focus on that. And they're going to be really inefficient. You don't have any of those efficiencies of scales or brand recognition or, or that renewal power or anything like that to, to help with that. So it's going to be working against you, which is why it's most important that you really kind of focus on, on this as the P1. It's like this has to be the CEO's number one job, kind of morning, noon, and night. It's fascinating. And having been at, at companies kind of at both ends of that, I think that's right. I don't think you could underestimate how much of a transition this is going to be and how much focus it would take and how holistic it, it would be. Um, just the sales incentive. You know, if you, if you get into a profitable, high revenue on-prem business and you've got some of your larger customers that are expanding rapidly, you know, they're, they're, they're doubling their annual spend with you because their, their business is exploding. But then you're also losing 20, 30% of your customers kind of every year that have you know, shifted off and gone off to the, the next generation of technology and the startups. Now you're in a renewals business and you either accept that and you dig in and you say, well, I'm gonna hold on to this thing for all that I can, or you do something that helps manage that renewals business, but we, you treat it as a fund you treat it as a way of funding your emerging business and you got to go pick one emerging business and treat it like a startup and and you know don't don't forget your your startup days uh, from a product from an engineering from from a growth hacking from a sales perspective and and that uh, explains well why it's so difficult to reinvent yourself right so as a company as a business i mean it's just not super easy as you said we don't have a lot of good examples we have a few maybe considering you know all of the stories we hear and it's a huge risk and uh, and in our domain uh, in analytic world we have seen it you know we have seen some companies trying to reinvent themselves and some companies maybe even if they are massive they are multi-billion dollar companies tableau is a good example you know maybe at one point they had the options should we reinvent ourselves or should we you know be acquired by a bigger company and say that's not doing it and not go to the next chapter. And uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's tough. So at that point, the wise choice normally, uh, I would say I have seen more often in the market is, you know, you, you are pretty established, let's, you know, not really um, at that point take the risk to reinvent yourself and then mess up everything that you have built so far and all of the customer base and users and legacy system that you have put in place. But you have to accept at that point that the new world is changing and it's a just, you know, maybe a slow kind of growth or no growth, or sometimes even, you know, we are just slowly, slowly just going to sunset, but that may take a long time. And, and you know, I, I've heard the term a J curve, and I think that's an interesting model that like, if you accept that, if you accept like, look, our revenue might go down for a little while, but we're going to let it go down and intentionally don't be surprised by it investors, employees, salespeople. We're going to do that somewhat intentionally because we're focused on this transition. Now, that's really hard to do, to have that discipline, especially if you're a public company. But frankly, even if you've, you've been like acquired by private equity, like they're treating that almost like a loan. And it's, it's very unnerving to see revenue start to fall in that way. But like that's going to probably happen. You would have to be 
not only a legacy company, but a very high performing kind of legacy company, having a legacy business, if, if you were going to transition that without some form of a J curve. So I think, you know, open your eyes to that and expect it and be transparent with all of your shareholders and employees. But it just, it, it, it speaks more to the need to, to go through it. And if, if at all possible, if you see this thing coming, fix it before you go public. I think the moment you go public is very difficult to then go do a transition, right? This is this is disruptive and it's risky and it's scary and you want to be private <laughs> at that time, uh, venture-backed private, uh, you know, ideally at that time. And it's, if that's what matters most to you and you're doing some sort of business model transformation, SaaS aside, that's, a, that's both a technical technology transformation and a business transformation, but any kind of business transformation, I think, is, is, is sort of similar. So, you know, I'll give you an example at my current company, Big Panda, venture-backed, you know, private company. We're in the process of embarking on a transformation to go from a subscription revenue model to usage-based. It's going to be impactful. Uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tricky. Our customers are already asking for it. So I know there's demand in, in the market for it, but it's going to mess with our books for a little while. So we need to get through that now. And, and there's sort of no thought of like, let's go public until we get on the other side of that kind of a thing. And I think that's the right thing to do. I would hate to go public and then say, okay, which transformations do we need to go embark on now? Who's at the at our heels trying to disrupt us, you know, et cetera. So you get it done as early as you can. Well, there are many other topics we can just branch out from here and go. But uh, before I go further, I would like to uh, ask you if you could uh, tell us a little bit about the event that I know is coming, uh, the upcoming event at Big Panda, if you could explain it a little bit. So there might be some interest. Yeah, so there's an event that Big Panda organizes, let's say. Uh, it's not our event. We think of it as a community event. It's called Resolve. Uh, it's a annual event. Come, it's coming up on May 18th, virtual event, and it's basically an IT ops uh, community event. So it's us uh, trying to work with with our customers and other partners and members of the community to, to, to bring them together to create a conversation, create a movement from kind of traditional IT ops to what we refer to as AI ops or AI based. Uh, IT operations. So the theme this year is the rise of AI ops, and we have a number of of, of, of customers and partners that will be speaking and talking about uh, kind of how do you get started, what does success look like, best practices and tips. Um, you can register at bigpanda.io/resolve, and if you're out there listening and you have an IT operations team leader. Send them. Uh, I think they'd find it fascinating to 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 listen in. I myself will be moderating a panel that includes a couple of sort of uh, venture capitalists and some financial analysts and some uh, journalists as well. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. It's just a few weeks from now, and I think it's a great way of kind of bringing this community together that kind of hasn't had a, a forum or a voice in the past. And, and we're, we're hoping to use this to uh, to do that. And we've been very successful the last couple of years with this event. So when would be the date then? May 18th. May 18th. Okay, great. And it's virtual so people can join it from around the world. Exactly. Okay, fantastic. You already mentioned a book, but I wonder if you have some recommendations for other books or you wanted to explain about the same. But the reason I asked for the books, I 
think that one of the, first of all, it's hard to imagine, but really internet zero was really when the print machine was invented. So we did not have really a good way to, you know, just uh, communicate and distribute the information before we had the print machine in 1500. So that was internet zero. It's very important. It's still very important. When we have books, we can just share our experience with other people. It has not gone away, even in internet age. And then, of course, now we have internet one and two and web three now coming that all of those accelerates the information distribution. But it's still, we rely very much on version zero that are really books that people write, share their experience that they have gained across, you know, many, many years. Somebody might just summarize all the lifetime experience into 100 pages. So that's definitely like a miracle. We can really read and, you know, get it smarter. So definitely books are the most important still you know, for us, especially, you know, in the software product technology that is relatively new. And then we need to share our experience with each other so we all can do much better and serve our customers and users better. So with that said, I appreciate if you could share, you know, a book or some with our audience. Yeah, Arman, thank you for that that perspective. I like the way you kind of described it, uh, the importance of it, the significance of of books. I struggle sometimes to find the time for reading. Uh, I think everyone does in kind of a busy modern world. So I do a lot of audiobooks, and and there's good things and bad things about that. One is I have more time, whether it's commuting or working out or something like that. I have more time for it. The bad things is some of the really best books give you lots of ideas. You know, especially you read some sort of business framework book like you know Jeffrey Moore's books or kind of career roadmap and management books like Patty Azzarello's books, they give you a bunch of good ideas. And I find myself, I'll be like running and, and constantly setting myself's reminders using Siri. <laughs> Siri, remind me in two hours to think about the blah, 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 or, or whatever. It's just a funny way of trying to, to get that. But to your point, you know, the, the concept of always searching for frameworks and wisdom of others to enable you to go faster and learn from from where they struggled, it's just so powerful. And I don't know why, but there's just a lot of people that don't necessarily do that. There's a notion that you kind of finish your, your learning and your education sometime in your early 20s. And then from there on out, it's it's like doing, you know, let's just focus on, on, on doing the work as opposed to continuing learning and, and maintaining that growth mindset. And, and certainly I, I have struggled with that in, in, in in the past as well, a lot better as of late. You know, I mentioned the Jeffrey Moore books, but I'll add uh, Patty Azzarello's books as well. She has two that I know of at least. One is called Rise, and it's sort of three practical steps to taking a hold of your own career and launching yourself on an upward trajectory. You know, sometimes people will come to me and say, hey, what's my path to, and then they'll mention like a title that's like one or two levels above where they are now. And, and it's like they're, they're coming to me to give them that answer. And I just sent them Patty's book. I'm like, read Rise. It'll tell you what to do. Follow the frameworks there. It'll tell you, you got to do better, then you got to look better, and then you connect better. That's how the book is organized. And it's got like an amazing amount of wisdom kind of packed in there. And it, it also says it's on you. It's your responsibility to do these things. Others will help you along the way, but you got to be a self-starter in this area. So it kind of turns the conversation back around. 
if I'm honest, I read the book a couple of years ago. I got about a third of the way through. Really stressed me out. <laughs> there was too much wisdom in there and I wasn't ready for maybe all of that. So I paused it. I spent about a year and a half doing better, following its guidance uh, sort of loosely. I read it again a couple of years later and I was like, okay, I feel like I'm good. You know, I'll, I'll, I finished the book and then I went to our next book, which is interesting. It's called Move. And it's about guiding an organization through a transformation. How do you do that? How do you lead a company? How do you move the company through some transformation, which is hard and everybody wants to conspire against it and that kind of stuff. And again, I found very valuable frameworks provided in there. Thank you very much for sharing those. Uh, definitely appreciate it. And thank you so much, Fred, for joining us again. I hope to see you and speak with you again at this show, as well as in other occasions. You know, it's a small world. After all, it's a tech community. <laughs> we are 1% of the whole community. We are software builders and inside the software world. Thanks again, and I uh, hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. Same to you, Arman. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Take care, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sascale.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com. <laughs>